Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey everyone, welcome to the 255th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by amazing $10 Just Shoot It hat patrons, Deanna Bechtel, Joe Harris, and Cody Flores Jaragui, which I'm for sure saying wrong. But by the time you hear this episode, you should be wearing your hat. Thanks for supporting us. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got fellow podcaster and fellow filmmaker Mike Petchy on the show. This is a crossover episode with his podcast, In Love with the Process. We dive in with Mike about moving to Los Angeles. He's a relatively recent transplant, but he's also built a career back in Boston and kind of talk about the balance between figuring out when you're ready to move into a different marketplace and the sort of confidence and experience that he garnered along the way and how all of his dreams are coming true. So it's a great conversation and a nice introduction into a different podcast and a different world. I don't know about this, like interviewing people whose dreams are coming true. It's kind of a bummer, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Or and your dreams are coming true too. Yeah, I mean, you know, they like have come true. I was just actually watching a video essay on YouTube last night from Michael Tucker, who does lessons from a screenplay and who's been on our podcast before, where he did a video essay about Soul, the Pixar movie. And the character's like want versus his need. Have you seen that movie? I have, yes. So there's this like amazing moment. And if you haven't seen this movie already, it's your fault. And I don't think it's a big spoiler, but (laughs) something happens to the character. He gets this thing he's always dreamed of and he realizes like, now what? Um, Like what's next, you know? And so I do feel like when we talk about our own dreams, a lot of times you get the things like, oh, you get paid to direct. Oh, someone brings you a script. Oh, your thing is on TV. Oh, your thing is in the movie theater. Like all these things. And we're like, yeah, but what's the next level? You know, like I'd yeah, like to have yeah, a yeah. better thing or a bigger thing or a bigger budget or more people involved. You know, so yes. So our dreams are always realized and then also immediately replaced with bigger dreams. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's the nature of ambition or maybe some sort of sense of inadequacy that it's has driven us for our entire lives. Who knows? That's for a different podcast and perhaps our therapist. Yeah, but here we are <laughs> talking to the void for very, your benefit. <laughs> very controversial that you'll probably make me cut out, but I'm going to say it anyway. I have a friend that told me that he's noticed 
whenever he talks to Jewish filmmakers, which I am one, they're constantly disappointed <laughs> with their own accomplishments. <laughs> he's like, I wonder if that's why like a lot of Jewish people are successful because they're never they're never happy <laughs> with what well, they've done. I will say this, having really put in a significant effort to reach out to filmmaker friends and, and talk to them, uh, you know, I'm kind of in the early stages of getting a movie going. And so I've been reaching out to a lot of different people and everyone is pretty depressed. So I, I, think, <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's purely just like... Well, no, but that's, I mean, that's probably pandemic related. I'm just pandemic saying in related, general. But also like, you know, I, I, I'll let you know when I talk to someone who loves their reps. Uh, yeah, Just like outright as like, I found the person for me. This is per- well. I we I I will let you know. It's Roxy. Roxy loves her reps. <laughs> yeah. No, but do you think like like Picasso was like yeah, I'm pretty happy, <laughs> like with what's going on? Or do you think? I, I think he was busy uh, busy womanizing. I think that there's I think okay. that was oh, a, definitely yes, a, a broken person. He's like a like a bad. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you think like maybe Ryan Coogler's like? Yeah. Uh, I'm in this position where people are just offering me the movies, and I get to do either my own project or whatever other project I want to do. Well, like, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's probably right. happy filmmakers, right? You can take it out into the abstract. I think there's certainly happy filmmakers, but the question of how do I continue to push my art and push my career, which are one and the same can, if you let it get you down, you know, no matter where you are in your career. I do remember when I was an intern making a joke about being worried about my career and Oscar winning director at the, at this point, joking that yeah he is too like everyone was was everyone's worried about their careers and so you just have to enjoy the ride man you have to be in love with the process of just shooting it so bringing it back to mike petchy who's post in love with the process after we spoke to him you and i kind of had some discussions about whether his advice of when you should move to Hollywood was universal or if it's more of relative advice, right? Mike was of the mindset that once you establish yourself in your hometown, then you should move to Hollywood. And you, for instance, moved to Hollywood before you started your career. And so I thought maybe we could just speak for a few minutes about how, you know, everybody knows this, but the advice we give is is everyone has their own path in the film industry and Mike had, has a path that has been very successful for him. We have our own paths that have been successful for us. But what's your, what's your take on when to move to Hollywood? Do you think there is like a preferred time or do you think it's more about you? I think it's about you. I think that there is a complicated question of feeling like, well, when will I be quote unquote ready, right? And at what point am I missing out on my own network and resources and and a safety net right because like i think mike's point which is totally valid is that like really expensive cities have their own set of challenges right like that making a living is could be harder certainly it costs more money to live in los angeles than most other cities in the world so that's a burden that that people have to compensate for and so i think the the thing that was helpful for me is that i moved when I was young enough that my cost of living and my standards were quite low. So I had a bunch of roommates and it wasn't a big deal because every single person I knew had a bunch of roommates. If I was 32 and decided to move to Los Angeles and then had to live in a shitty apartment in K-Town with six other dudes and like didn't have a room of my own for a decade, 
would I be bummed? Yeah, for sure I would. But so to me, tearing that Band-Aid off early was the right decision. And so when you're younger, it's a lot easier to like just cram everybody into one space and, and you know, party for a couple of years. It was great. But yeah, I mean, you, you kind of you split the difference, though, right, Orin? You went to school here, but then you lived in the Bay Area for years. Had a yeah, career. and when I went to school here, I had zero connection with the film industry aside from being an extra on TV shows, but still as very much as an outsider, just being exposed to the beauty of filmmaking without actually meeting anyone in the film industry. And also for people who haven't spent any time at UCLA, which is where you went, it is the type of campus that's quite insular. It's very easy to live at UCLA and not have a car and not see the rest of the city very, very easily, comfortably, happily. You know, like everything that you need is in Westwood Village. And so I'm sure there are many, many people, especially ones who are studying pretty hard, who who just, you know, walk down to the the little downtown area and grab some food or whatever or live in the dorms and then you're good to go. You know, like did you were you out exploring I had Los zero Angeles? knowledge of LA. I like honestly couldn't even find the Hollywood sign. I I was so insulated. So I, even though I lived in LA, I didn't really count that as time towards my career. Mm-hmm. I, I was yeah. not studying. You lived film, in though. Westwood Village. You didn't live in yeah. Greater Los Angeles for sure. The one thing I got a taste of was there's this uh, famous Fox Theater in Westwood Village where they would do a lot of movie premieres, and we would just walk by and we would see like the red carpet and celebrities and limousines and flash paparazzi, and so I was like next to this industry without actually being a part of it in any way. But I did see the glitz and the glamour and I thought, oh, that seems like a fun <laughs> a fun thing to be a part of. Yeah, and I, I don't want to downplay it. Like most college towns don't have Hollywood premieres down the street from them. So that that is a, a different thing for sure. But for the most part, I think it's pretty, pretty similar actually to a lot of kind of smaller... Liberal arts colleges, you know. Yeah. And I I think I guess my view on moving to Hollywood and the reason it's such a big topic on this show is it's not literally about the physical movement to Hollywood. That's a big deal. It's about taking the leap, you know, and it's about there's always this in everything in life, not just filmmaking. There's like risk versus reward and the bigger risk you're willing to take, the bigger reward you might get or the bigger loss you might get. And there's nothing riskier than leaving your family and leaving a place where you're like the king of the roost or whatever. You're the person that knows everyone that can get free locations and free actors and um, you're, you know, you're popular and move to a place where nobody knows you and nobody cares about you and it's insanely expensive to live. That's that's a gigantic risk, especially if you have a family or something right, like right. that. And it's important to mention that when I did it, it was for for school. So it had a built-in infrastructure. There were there was a, a department that could tell me where to live and what to eat. Right. You know, you had the safety net built yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Then, exactly. Yeah, I didn't have that, but I did move here with a few friends from San Francisco that were also in the same position as me that wanted to get into film. So if you can move here with friends that are interested in film, of course, that's that's the best that's the easiest way to do it, I think. Or if you already know people in LA. Yeah, it's a big risk, but the reward is going to be bigger here or there might be some other, you know, big film cities like Atlanta or New York or Vancouver or something that can give you similar a similar thing. But the other thing I th- always think about, and I think maybe they talk about this on script notes or basically every writer, professional writer 
talks about this, which is that you can forever say that you want to be a writer, that you're an aspiring writer, that you want to write screenplays. But really, the only thing that matters is, are you writing? You know, if you're writing, then you are a writer. And to me, that's the same thing. If you extrapolate that to the rest of the film industry, if you want to work in Hollywood, then go to Hollywood and then you are working in Hollywood. Even if you are a valet, you know, and you're just meeting in people through that, you're like, you have to do things, you, you know, just like shooting it. You have to do things before, instead of saying you want to do those things. And, and that with what we do, moving here, taking a risk, jumping off, quitting your day job, quitting your corporate job, getting rid of uh, all the things that make you comfortable is one of those things that you do. And whether you do it once you're established in your hometown or not, it doesn't matter. It just changes the timeline a little bit. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think the other thing that you made me think of, and I think we dig into it with Mike because things are evolving and things are changing. But like, you know, Mike found the exposure that he needed online, which I think is a really valuable uh, an important point, right? But, you know, the flip side is is that when you're in Los Angeles and you're writing, once you're done, and I'm going through this literally right now, once you're done with the screenplay, you do have to send it to somebody, right? Like, you have to figure out how to get it made. And so knowing producers, knowing actors, knowing cinematographers, and knowing enough that you can pick and choose a little bit and you can say, oh, this project is right for that person. The larger your network is, the more likely it is that you'll be able to to connect those dots. And I think that Mike would argue that he wrote and directed things that were exactly right for the strong producing partners that he had uh, back home. And I think that that's right on. But I think that it depends on what your tribe is like, what your what your community is like. And so if you're a, a comedy writer in a town that's like kind of mostly into horror or, or just like a, a group of friends who are mostly into horror, you know, that can be a little complicated. And so it's really nice to be able to say, okay, well, who is in my network? Who would like this? The nice thing about larger markets is that likely your community is a little bit broader and therefore you can kind of like do that matchmaking basically well cool well now maybe we'll let mike give us his opinion <laughs> as we hear the interview with him but i wanted to remind people real quick that we do have a patreon patreon.com slash just shoot it pod is the url to go find out more about it it is a place where if you feel like you get anything out of this podcast you want to give us a couple bucks a month just to support us help us pay our editor and our social media people and our server fees that is great patreon.com slash just shoot it pod at the $10 level, you also get a Just Shoot It hat, which uh, many people have enjoyed. Also, I want to mention, you know, we talk a lot about iTunes and all of that, but we are on Spotify, and giving us a quick follow on Spotify is a very easy way to help support the show. Like, that helps raise our exposure levels and get us out into the world, and hopefully other people who would like the show but maybe haven't heard about it yet can get turned on to it and you can grow the community that way as well so if you were listening on spotify and you were not following us or if you have a spotify account and you know uh you're not into podcast yet they're really making a a go of the whole podcasting thing so tr- drop us a follow i should follow us. Oren's doing it right now he's going to tell us how easy oh. it is okay i typed in just shooting into spotify oh it says i'm already following i guess i have to unfollow but it's that easy. That's that quick. Yeah. And also, if you don't want to give us money on Patreon, we get it. Just rate us on IMDb instead. <laughs> IMDb and Spotify, those are the two requests. If you want to show your support, 
We appreciate you. And now let's talk to Mr. Mike Petchy from In Love With The Process. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. Mike, welcome to the show, buddy. It's been months of emails back and forth, but we're all we're all so crazy busy. Yeah. Hey, guys. Hey, Matt. Even in lockdown. Hey, yeah, hey Matt. Hey, Aaron. Welcome to my show because we're both doing shows at the same time. So this is uh, cool. wait, the people that say welcome to the show first, I think are it's officially their show. Oh my god, I feel that. like we're just trying to. Like like, a, I feel like we're standing. Who's standing higher like in the fucking bleachers shotgun. right now? <laughs> Hi, fellas. Well, uh, action. <laughs> well, so for Mike's listeners, Matt and I were directors, and we do. Uh, I I've been doing primarily commercials lately, but we've both done a lot of narrative stuff, web series some TV things, some music videos. I think Matt's done more music videos than me, especially in the last 10 years. But yeah, I think we do a lot of the same stuff that Mike does, except it takes two of us to do what what one Mike does. Okay, well, these days, all I'm doing, fellas, is I'm sitting in my underpants in front of a microphone at my desk. That's pretty much what I'm directing. I'm directing- Paint us a picture, Mike. Paint us a picture. <laughs> my direction at this point is what bowl am I putting the cereal in that I'm going to eat next to the computer all day? Okay, that's it. Perfect. <laughs> well, I guess on that note, you told us right before we started recording, you know, that you had made this decision to move to Los Angeles just a few months before COVID hit. I assume you were- on the East Coast, you were shooting a ton and then you came here and then kind of COVID hit and slammed everything into a brick wall. Can you tell us a little bit about like what you were doing on the East Coast and how you decided to like kind of make the big move to the West Coast? And um, yeah, and that, that whole transition. Well, I mean, the shorter version of the story is that uh, I ended up going to film school in New York and I was trained in New York on how to produce movies. I always wanted to be a film director. And that was the thing. And I decided after going to film school and having to produce, you know, three or four short films in a city that I didn't have any connections in or uh, relatives in, I uh, asked myself that question like, man, if I, li- if I stay here in New York, I probably will do okay. But if I go back to my hometown, I know everybody. So, I can get all sorts of really great locations. I can get access to stuff. So, I'm going to do that. So, I went back home and I started a production company. This was like- And, and Mike, where is back home? Uh, Boston. So, living in Boston and I started a production company, Jesus, in like 2000. And so, that was the year I said goodbye to a normal job and that was the year I said hello to anxiety for the rest of my life. And then uh, started doing, building like a music video production company, building a commercial production company, doing a lot of corporate shit. Uh, just essentially to stay alive. And so, I, every once in a while- I You would, were directing all the stuff t- 
too that you were producing. Yeah. Like in the beginning, I was uh, directing on my own and then I had a business partner for years and we were co-directing for a bit, which got a little sloppy. Co-directing is always interesting. And then ended up doing my own thing. And I think that it was such a an exciting thing to do when I was younger because I was able to learn basically while I was getting paid to learn. I was learn I was learning on the ground and I had my notions were correct. Not only was I able to get access to like amazing locations and I built a team of people and an amazing crew from the ground up and and so for, you know, what is it like 15 years or whatever it was, that amount of time was spent just learning the craft. But once you start a company and I know I don't know if you guys feel the same way, once you start a company and you suddenly you have overhead and you've got an office and you've got shit, you end up falling into the grind. And if you're, you know, if you're making that- I mean, that's when you end up spending like two weeks figuring out like your IT stuff, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. well, can I really read the sand disk, the, you know, the hard drives to work with all these computers? And you're like, oh, I'm not even a filmmaker anymore. I'm like an IT guy. Yeah. Accounting yeah. even. Yeah. Or, or, or even saying yes to jobs that you wouldn't yeah. normally- uh, because you have bills to pay or like you said, overhead, like if you have any staffers, you know, the idea of rolling your eyes at something that's not as cool as you, you know, of a project as you want to be working on all of a sudden becomes imperative. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Definitely. And then you, you, and you, it's easy to get lost in it because it's, you know, in a, in a business where we don't get that much gratification, you know what I mean? So you start doing these jobs and you do a great commercial, you do a really good music video and it starts to get a lot of comments online or we were winning awards because we luckily were doing it at the tail Wait, end. Can I stop you for a second? Yeah. What do you mean that we don't get that much gratification in this business? <laughs> is that and I, I, I think my question is coming off as sarcastic, but honestly, I used to be an engineer and like the reason <laughs> I wanted to move into film is because like I could show my mom something I made and she would understand it. Like it's to me, it's like 100% about gratification. Even if you're making a corporate video and you're like, check out this fucking awesome upbeat corporate music I put in here and how it hits on this cut. Look at this time lapse. It's pretty dope. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it I think it just depends on what it is that you... Here's the thing. It all depends on what it is that you want and whether or not you're acknowledging what it is that you want or you're hiding from it. And so for me, I wanted to be a film director. 100%. And I wanted to be making the type of films that that got me excited. You know, like I'm the, the kid that would watch Terminator on VHS until it died. You know what I mean? So, like, I wanted to get to that point and I allowed... Yeah, by the way, he dies at the end. It's like when he goes into the <laughs> lava stuff. But yeah, go on. <laughs> Not in the first one, man. Uh, so, so uh, I, I got to that point in my uh, career where I realized that I was just hiding from it. I was hiding from actually making a movie. I was hiding from that whole thing. So everything else just didn't have that same gratification. It just felt like instant gratification as opposed to like actual gratification. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You're working towards the larger goals. Yeah. The secret is that running a company is actually much easier than becoming a visionary filmmaker. <laughs> because there's substantial ways to measure it. In a way, right. that it's hard to measure your creative. Certainly. I, I think also just to, to pump the brakes for a tiny second, I think that there's certainly this mentality when I went to film school of like, I don't want to have to worry about accounting or own a small business or any of that. Like, I don't want to be an adult. So I'm going to become an artist, right? The more you work, the more you realize no matter what, you can't avoid that stuff, right? Like maybe you don't, maybe I don't have overhead necessarily, but you're still like invoicing, like managing numbers. Being a filmmaker is running a business no matter what, whether you are 
you know, at the top of your game, the biggest in the world, or, you know, just kind of trying to like scrap a share grid career together, you know, like no matter what, you can't avoid that stuff. And so coming to terms with it and understanding that that enables your artistry, I think is a thing that they don't talk about enough to young filmmakers. Totally, man. And let me be clear about what I'm saying. I, I don't think that that's what was dissuading me from it. I don't think I was ever afraid of running a business or I didn't, like running a business wasn't a chore to me. I think at the end of the day, it just came down to hours in the day. And so like, if you find yourself in a position where you're like, I'm going to go home, I, I want to go home and I want to write the script for this horror movie that I want to do. And so you're like, but I can't do that right now because I have to finish producing this commercial. I have to finish uh, doing payroll. I have to finish doing taxes. I have to finish doing all this stuff. And then you start to ask yourself, why am I doing all this stuff if I can't sit down and write a script? If I can't go and shoot a movie over the course of this weekend, how did I find myself swamped down with so many different distractions? And I did it to myself. And ultimately did it to myself because I was like, I don't think I have a story worth telling it for a movie. So maybe I'll just do music videos and I'll practice the techniques that I would use for a movie on the music videos, which was great for the first like three years that I did that. But on like year seven and you're just like getting another brief from a band and it's a band that watched the movie and they just want to recreate. It's like, wouldn't it be cool if it was like set, if it was like seven <laughs> and you're like, okay guys. Yeah. I saw that movie too. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it would be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I, you you got to pay me? You got to pay me that kind of money? You guys yeah. saw my reel, right? I've done that a couple times. <laughs> but then, you know, you sort of hit this point where you go, what am I doing? Am I hiding from this? And for me, really what happened was I I almost died. So I had like a near-death experience that, uh, you know, I, I know it's cliche, but I had a near-death experience that sort of changed everything for me. And the story is that I ended up going, I went on an ice skating date with my now girlfriend, but at the time we were just dating and I had never put ice skates on before in my life. And she took me down. I don't know if you've been to Boston, but this is a place called Frog Pond, which is in the commons. It's like where all the romantics go to ice skate. And I ended up stepping out on the ice for the first time and slipped and fell and uh, cracked my skull. So I landed on the back of my head, cracked my skull and I had a hematoma and uh, bleeding inside. And I was in intensive care for five days. And the doctor said to me, like, we can't let you go to sleep because if you go to sleep, you might not wake up. And uh, you got to call your family and you should really think about your life. <laughs> Wait, so dude, this is a thriller, right? It's like speed, except if you fall asleep, yes. you never finish yes. your movie. Yes. Um, totally. And so you got to caffeinate until the movie's done. <laughs> totally. Uh, yeah, there's like a one-up. Dude, that's a crazy story from ice skating. Yeah, man. That is wild. It's romance. You know, we, sometimes we talk about like people drawing a line in the sand, you know, like having that decision making moment and how for most people it doesn't happen that way. It's never that stark. Like, there, you know, most people are never going to have a doctor be like, hey, you need to reassess what you <laughs> want out of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe on your deathbed, you know, like that, that's wild, man. So w from then on out, were you like, I'm going to get out to LA. I'm going to focus on features. That's well, no, I mean, my that simple or no, no, my move essentially was, you know, you, you assess shit, right? Because after five days in intensive care, I was in five months of recovery from the concussions and everything. So I was forced not to, for the first time in like 15 years or whatever it was, I was forced not to work. And so I had to sit around and uh, process this shit. And basically when I was in that room after the doctor left, I went, ah, all right, well, let me look at my life. What do I got? 
family's good. I've got a decent company. I've done a bunch of really great music videos. Met a lot of cool people. It's all good. And this girl seems pretty cool. She's sticking around, even though I fucking murdered myself. So that's cool. I never made a fucking movie. And so at that moment, it was like, well, if I get out of this shit, I'm going to make that my priority. That, that'll be what I do. And in that whole period of time, because of the concussions and because of this, I have to show you guys the uh, CAT scans of my brain. Because of what was happening to it, I was having like really severe uh, hallucinations. And I would turn to this poor girl that was with me and I was like, I need you to record this. And I would start spouting what I was seeing and what was happening. And uh, through those five months, I actually sat down and was so inspired by it that I wrote the uh, first draft for what was 12 Cam, which is one of the movies that's in development. And uh, that changed everything for me. But when I came out of it, it wasn't, I'm going to move to LA, I'm going to move to Hollywood. It was like, I've got- Wait, were you still running the production company this whole time while you were having the hallucinations? Well, my, my business partner at the time was picking up the slack, you know, and then I came out of it and I was like, dude, I'm changing everything. Poor guy, I had to deal with that. But when I came out of it, I was like, I've already got the team, I've got the crew, I've got all these people, I know what I'm doing. I'm just going to make this movie about a bunch of Russians. And I decided to do it in a language I don't speak, so I shot it in Russian and just do our damnedest to make this really great thing. And it was the best thing I ever did because what, it, what I did was I just gave into my passion. I gave into what it was that I was hiding from for so many fucking years. And it was like, this is my job for this period of time to make this proof of concept. This is my job and I love it. And if you talk to any of the crew that was on set, they're like, you're the best that we've ever seen you. This is what you've been born to do. And that moment changes everything. And then, and also to be fair, Mike, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that the crew that you're shooting with, you've been hiring for, you know, 15 odd years or whatever. Uh, and so you've got all of that goodwill, all of those favors that you can call in to be like, hey guys, let's make this as awesome as possible. And so all of a sudden, what would have been maybe a lower budget, quote unquote, proof of concept, you're cashing in all of that goodwill. Hell yeah, dude. And let me also be clear. I'm not dogging or talking shit about those years of prep that I did. Those years of prep were incredibly important. Like learning how to direct a union crew on a commercial, incredibly important. Like learning how to deal with agents and managements with acts and artists, incredibly important. Like every... That's what my show is essentially about is like, I have a lot of young filmmakers that come to me two years in and they're like, I'm really not successful and I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm like, dude, statistically, it takes eight years before anybody gives a shit about you. So wait, how did, where did you get that statistic? Uh, where did I get that statistic from? Uh, I forget where I read it initially, but every person that I know that I've talked to on my podcast, I go, when did you start becoming successful? And they're like, oh, I was right about here. And I go, yeah, that's like seven and a half years, right? Yeah, seven and a half years. Yep. It just happens that way, man. It takes, and there are outliers. There are total outliers that it's like, I have a connection. My uncle works in the business. I've got some shit. You're like, okay, cool. But the people that like put their nose to the grindstone, it takes that long to make it in this industry, dude. Yeah. For me, it's 16 years. I think. <laughs> well, dude. I'm 16 right now, so we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but come on, man. I've seen your website. Yeah. When was the, when was oh, your. Yeah, I discovered Squarespace three years ago. I'm not oh, lie come on, that. dude. When was your first, when was your first job that you got called to do? Like someone called you up on the phone and said, 
hey, we think you're going to be good for this, or I'd like to throw you in on this treatment, or I think you'd be the right person for this. Well, my very first job was my aunt called me and she said, hey, I have a company that distributes <laughs> AEDs, automatic external defibrillators, and we want to make a video for our website. I have $2,000. <laughs> um, so that was like my first paid gig. I promise. Uh, <laughs> I promise everyone that's not what our show is about. <laughs> No, it's mainly about defibrillators. Yeah, I tell, their, I tell I our that editor. They're automatic and external. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Orin, you don't even know how many times I've cut this story out of the show. <laughs> what do you mean? How you don't cut this? You don't cut the show. We have an editor. What are you talking about? I text it real quick. I have cut it a couple times. We've told the story many, many times. Yeah, but Mike Petchy's audience needs no. No, I'm just saying that. Like to me, it was like a really slow growth. Yeah. Like from that to getting to pitch on a real com- to like TV commercial was probably like. 10 years. Right. There's no, there's no need to split hairs though, right? Like the difference between like working professionally, like you work, you have a lot of like job jobs in Hollywood in between that and getting your first broadcast spot. Or- yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We were, there's been this Twitter conversation with Jen McGowan and stuff about this, like the, how many years does it take to make it? And like my, my take on it is always like, you actually never think you've made it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, like you might, you might have made it compared to like five, like you from five years ago, but compared to you from today, you're always like, ah, but it's not a Marvel movie. You know, it's not a Netflix show. It's not a Super Bowl commercial. Dude, totally. Like, um, totally. A, yeah. Years of disappointment. Well, yeah, of but course. It's fun. And, and making a living and, you know, and surviving is, is I think kind of like part of the end. Yeah. I mean, I think the, one of the other big parts of what our show is about is explaining to people that there's a big difference between being fresh out of film school and Steven Spielberg. Right. And those are the stories that you always hear. Right. It's always kind of like one of those two columns is, is kind of where all the advice is directed. And so or the anecdotes, at least, are, are retold from. Um, but there's a big, big chasm in between of experience and the livelihoods and networks and careers that uh, thrive in that space. And so like, I think Oren's being a little cheeky, but uh, you know, the, the question of like what success means to you is something that filmmakers are always tackling. But also I think a lot of what just shoot is about is saying, Oh, making a living is the first threshold. Right. Totally. Totally. Dude. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, this is a good show for us because we share a lot of that sentiment. I like, I think you guys are a little bit more gentle about it than I am though. At the, at the end of the day, it's like, there's enough tough people. Well, but at the end of the day, no one gives a fuck about you. Like no one gives a fuck about you until you prove yourself to be worthy of it at the end of the day. And like, if you're, expecting to get in this business because you you bought a fucking red camera and you're like, I know how to use it and I'm going to get hired for this stuff. It's like, you might get hired for this stuff, but you're just going to be a gear rental guy. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to be a gear rental guy until you realize that you are one. Like no one's going to care until you show them how passionate you are about your stuff. And you're not going to find that confidence to be passionate about that stuff until you've done it for a while, until you've screwed it up, until you've shown it to an audience and been completely mortified by what it is that you're showing them. Like it takes that time. And in that period of time, one thing that I realized when I was on the deathbed is that when I looked back, I was looking back at all these little pins in a map where it was like, okay, what happened last? That's when I did that project. And that's when I did that project. And that's when I did that project. And all those pins were my life. And I forgot about what was happening in between them because we become so obsessed with making it in this business. We become so obsessed with this world and this art. 
And I realize afterwards, when you look at it, you go, I'm only, if, if I'm in this business to either be the guy on stage crossing my arms going, look what I did. Or if I'm in this business to be on set commanding a crew of people, that's like less than 5% of my year. 95% of my time is this. It's prep. It's talking to people. It's writing things. It's learning things. It's like watching YouTube videos and teaching myself how to use a fucking scoring program. All these things are what my life is. And you have to really sort of fall in love with all that stuff. You really have to find, make sure that you like doing that because that is our jobs more than it is hanging out on set with like Julia Roberts. You know sure. what I mean? Oh yeah. I'm so sick of that. Yeah. yeah Julia, Julia. Like, it's like, stop your own crafty. Stop texting. Get it. Um, eating my chocolate covered dark almond. Mike, I, I love this. I'm very curious. And I think after the pandemic, it will be the real test. But I think that I would add to the list of things that you have to learn to love that you don't think of as quote unquote filmmaking is like taking meetings like you have to kind of love sitting in a weird chair and drinking a Fiji water also. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, I, yeah. I wonder. Dude, everyone um, loves that, don't you think, Matt? Like, isn't that kind of like, ooh, I have a meeting with the uh, well, production company, with J.J. Abrams production company. Sure. I, I, I understand no where you're like, coming uh, from. Uh, so Andy Samberg. For, for Mike's listeners, before I was directing full time, I was in development. And so I took a ton of pitches. I took a lot of pitches that will say I was the first threshold, right? Like I, the, no decisions were being for Comedy made. Central. For, for Comedy Just Central. Yeah, yeah. Context. Yeah. So, so I was getting like pitched on like the, you know, the people who were still warming up and who had to refine their ideas and we were interested in, but like. It was me and a few other junior people, not the, the the giant boardroom with 16 people. And so, Oren, to answer your question, yeah, I know that a lot of people were amped at the prospect of a, of a meeting, but the act of, say, pitching or even just schmoozing with people like me, imagine it, it's not always something that people have a knack for or an interest in or, an, or a love for, right? Like the act of developing something with a network or with a studio can be pretty grueling, you know, and it's it's a strange, strange, different thing than especially being a stand up or, you know, uh, a director, you know, like it's yeah. so different. I always say <laughs> I always think it's ironic in our business, especially for directors, because a lot of directors are like very introverted. <laughs> They're introverted little art students. Where it's just like, this is my world and this is what I'm building and this is what I do. And th then you come slowly come to the realization that your job is the most social job on the planet. <laughs> it's like, it's like every one of your paintbrushes comes with their own problems. Like this paintbrush has got wife problems at home. This one's got a, like a mortgage to pay for. So you're just consistently learning how to communicate with individuals and you're consistently examining yourself. And going, all right, how do I get this crazy shit that's in my head to come out of this mouth the correct way so that it goes in that person's head and is at least 60% crazy? And so, I love, you know, I, I really grew to love people. I really grew to love hanging out with people. I fucking really dig it. And I learned, you know, because when I did the first, uh, my 12-cam proof of concept, I ended up getting repped. I got uh, management and, uh, and uh, agents from it, which was... One of those like hurdles that as a young filmmaker, you're like, that's going to change the fucking world. You know, if I get an agent, if I get man management, then that changes everything. They're going to be sending me scripts all the time and shit's going to be amazing. Well, yeah. <laughs> welcome to the new level. Like, welcome to the beginning of the next level. And you learn that that's not the case. And you learn about 
meetings. And, and what you seem to be describing is what they would call general meetings all the time, where your manager in the beginning, when he picks you up, he wants to impress the shit out of you. So he's like, I set you up with a bunch of generals. And you're like, what does that mean? Like, am I going into a room full of fucking military people? What are you talking about, generals? And they're like, no, these are general meetings. And I'm like, so what do I talk about? Well, we send them over your movie and maybe they'll watch it, but you just go hang out and see if you like these folks. So to, to answer the question specifically though, because I bet there are people out there who are like, I do want to go on the general and I don't know what they're going to ask me. They're going to ask you uh, about your background a little bit. You're going to talk about film school or whatever. Don't spend too much time on that. They're also going to ask you what your favorite movie or TV show is. (laughs) Have an answer because what they're really asking is like, what should we make together? And so, Mike, you sound like you're lucky in that you can say, well, my favorite movie is Terminator. And that has some sort of uh, bearing on your career and your style and your voice and vision. I have said Alien as a comedy director so many times you'd think I would have figured it out by now. Like, just say Fargo. Just say The Graduate. Just say The Big Lebowski, stupid. I didn't say any of those. Uh, But so then that really... um, that really blows the the conversation. It's a little hard to move forward from that. I get reprimanded consistently from my guys when I go into a general meeting as a horror guy. And I walk into a meeting and I start getting like really nerdy with uh, whoever I'm chatting with. And they're like, so what's your favorite movie? In the beginning, I'd be like, have you ever seen Beyond the Black Rainbow? And I'd start talking about Beyond the Black Rainbow. And then my manager would call me up and be like, don't bring that up the fucking meetings. <laughs> well, I'm like, why? I like, agree why? to disagree as long as the executive says yes if they know that movie and love it that's fine <laughs> well from his perspective he was like that movie never made money <laughs> sure, and it's sure. such a it's such an art house movie that's never gonna make cash so please don't put that in your pitch decks don't put that in your stuff like move on sure look at the enough. movies that did really well and you're like okay all right guys i know it's a business i know yeah i usually try to pivot to like things i've i'm watching now or i've been watching recently because i just feel like I can have like a more visceral, less rehearsed reaction to them and hopefully, you know, find something that they've also seen. And to me, like a lot about filmmaking is why are we making this movie now or why are we making this show now? And so it's weird. I've definitely been asked that question before, like, what's your favorite movie? And I'm like, all of them just seems to me like not, you know, like if you say Die Hard or Forrest Gump or The Bicycle Thief, like, what does that Tell me about mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And to, to your point, Oren, really all they're asking is like, talk to me about movies that we can make together. That's that's all they're right. saying. Or, or show me how you think about cinema, right? Yeah. I also saw it as, and maybe I'm completely off base, but I also saw it as like, is this person someone I want to fucking spend time with? Is this person somebody that like, like he might have a great idea or his agent may have talked up this project. Um, but is this someone that I want to be on the phone with all of? Is this someone that I want to spend, you know, 15 hours a day on set with? Is this someone that I, that I care about? And I think more than anything, if I'm asked that question, I use that question as a, as a, as a bounce off point to just show them how passionate I am about films, period. But then I also throw the question back because I think a lot of people forget that when you go in for a pitch or if you go in to pitch a company on an idea for a commercial, that you're the spotlights on you. It's not like there are times where I'll walk in and uh, I've been asked to go in to pitch a movie. I'm not going to name any names because we're in the business, but I've gone in to pitch movie to uh, a director uh, that runs a production company that I always respected. I thought he was really fucking rad. And I went in and I did this pitch and about 30 minutes into this, this meeting, he was the worst person in the world to me. And I wanted to jump over the table and punch him in the face. 
And I walked out of there and I called up the, the my agent right away and I go, fuck that guy. And he goes, why? He called me. He thought you were really great. I go, I, I don't want to work with that guy. I'm not going to work with that guy. I'm not going to do it. And that was it. And it, like, I, you have to remember that this business, if you make a decision in this business, it's a decision that you have to live with for years. Like these things take forever to make. And so when you go into these meetings and you talk to these folks, you're also vetting them at the same time. It's like, I've, I've gone in to pitch horror movies and the only posters on the wall are all comedies. And I'm like, why are we here? Like, what is going on? Like, Kevin James isn't in this. Like, why are we here? What, what's this You should about? tear those posters down. So, <laughs> shouldn't mean business. <laughs> I do think there's this kind of, it takes, it's not something that you have right out of the gate, like right out of film school or right, right when you move to LA or whatever. But there is this like attitude adjustment that takes years to figure out, but that it's, it's not about them doing you a favor by wanting to work with you, you know, because a lot of people are like, please hire me. Look at, look at all these great things that I will do for you. Oh, you like that? I like that too. I'll do anything you want. And it takes people so long to realize that they actually want to find people that, that they, you know, that you're the train that they want to hop onto as opposed to the other way around, you know? And so the, the more you come with like your point of view and the less you need them, the more excited they'll be about getting the opportunity to work with you. But dude, I remember when I learned that. It's so hard to be specific because you don't want to burn bridges. But I remember when I learned that doing a commercial and I'm on this commercial and I, we, it was one of those moments where you try to keep your company alive, right? And so, this, this project comes in and right off the bat, there's a red flag. And I'm like, this isn't really my thing. Like, this is not, I'm not the guy for this. Can you give us an example of what a red flag is? All right. So, like, if someone comes into my space, I joked with the guy that I, get, I gave the job with. A friend of mine actually got the gig to be the cinematographer on American Chopper. Remember that reality TV show? Uh, and they had asked me to do it first. And so, I was like, no, nah, I'm not going to do it. And I helped him get the gig, put him in the position for it because I'm not the guy that you're going to strap on the back of a motorcycle and drive down the road at 60 miles an hour, hanging off the back of it, trying to get the shot. My other buddy doesn't have <laughs> doesn't have a care in the world, so he's totally willing to do that. That's an extreme version of it. There are projects that you will come your way that obviously scream, not you, not your style, not your not your reason for doing it. And you take those gigs out of desperation. And I've done that on corporate jobs where I'm like, this isn't my gig. I'm not happy with this. I'm not happy with this company. And I'm still going to have to do this because I have to pay the bills. And then you struggle to do it, right? And you, and every job I do, I want to do a great job with it. So, I'm like, all right, I'm going to make this fucking awesome. I'm going to get into it. And I'm, I'm really working it hard. And then you bring it to these clients that are completely unappreciative and they start judging it. And you're just sitting in the room looking at it going, I don't want to do this job anyways. And now, now I have to put my money into this to fix it because of your bullshit. And I didn't want to do this job anyways. And when you do enough of those, you go, I'm not doing that again. I'm not fucking doing it. And that's just the time. That's the experience, you know? Does it sound like I'm a bitter prick? <laughs> no, it actually sounds like you're a confident prick. Um, no, I mean, I'm just kidding about the prick part. But yeah, but it does take, I think every, all of us, I mean, I know Matt and I have had the experience of like just killing ourselves for a job that we're not like excited about. And then having that like moment of like, wait, is this why I'm here? Yeah, you know, what, what's the big plan here? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, right. if I'm doing this, I'd rather just you know be a lawyer, and make a ton of money, and <laughs> hate my job anyway. You know? Yeah, totally. Well, so let let's go. Let's reorient back to like why you you bounce you jumped from Boston to LA. 
So after doing the proof of concept, the shorter version of it is that I made a film that was 30 minutes long. And I made a film that was 30 minutes long because prior to that, I had made a, a fan film that was uh, shorter than that, that Marvel canceled on me. So essentially- That's the Punisher one. That's the Punisher one. Marvel came out and went, you know, I'll release this. It looks too good. It looks like it's our stuff. Did you make it before uh, Adi Shankar's yes. Punisher fan film? Yes. And then his got put out. Him and I were talking for a brief period of time. And the only reason why his went out is that he, all, he had the backing of a legal department. He had the backing of all that stuff. And my lawyer at the time told me, look, here's what'll happen. You can put this thing out. And they may not come after you now, but they'll come after you later. So, like, you have nothing now. What do you own? And you also, own even if, uh, you know, even if they don't, quote unquote, come after you with a lawsuit, like, it's very easy for them to just, like, you know, flag it on YouTube or Vimeo or wherever with a DMCA suit. YouTube's not in the business of caring. So, they, they just take it down. So, you've posted it and then you've racked up 10 million views or whatever, and then it just disappears. Totally. And so there was a lot of risk there. And so I, I, at that time, I had convinced my whole team and my whole crew to do this thing and the world's going to love it. It's going to be great because we had seen how the success of fan films and it failed. And so now I'm coming out of this head injury thing. I'm going back to the well again, I'm going back to all these people and saying to them, this time is going to be fucking great. This time is going to be really good. Well, I was, I was like, all right, look, I'm going to do a movie. I'm going to take this cold open and make it into sort of an arcing little piece that I can screen in the cinema. And I can promise you guys that I will put on like multiple screenings here in Boston. You can bring your friends, you can bring your family, you can bring everybody here. It's an experience. It's not like showing up to a screening room to watch someone's demo reel. Like, yeah, we'll, yeah. You're we'll not just this sending great. someone a link later on down exactly. the line. What were you pitching? A short film or a proof of concept? Proof of what? concept. So essentially, originally it was going to be the cold open for this original version of the feature, which took place in Russia. So I just sort of built it out a bit. And Which is why it's called the cold open. Yeah. Cold, exactly, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so I ended up calling these folks back together. We made this piece, and when I was making the film, I did the research online at film festivals, and it was like, as long as it's under forty minutes, it's short. It's considered for short stuff. It's like great. Made the movie. I was friends with a bunch of festival directors that I. Uh, called into the edit room before I was finished because I wanted to just get their input. So I brought them into Ooh, the edit room, which that's is kind of a genius idea. Dude, it's You've super fucking dude. Think about it because then they have exclusive screening. There's something great about being asked but by also, a director. If you take one of their notes, they're like, yeah, we got to yeah, this movie. It, it builds yeah. goodwill. And um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and certainly depending, we have heard versions of that with like different festivals where you send them rough cuts, but or, or working prints or something. The the key thing being that you already had relationships with them. That it's not a fresh relationship. Like you know, right. you, that's like step three. Step one is go to festivals. Step two is befriend people that work at festivals. Step three, start talking to them. Yeah, yeah. And in in between step uh, two and three, like don't be a douchebag. <laughs> there's, a, there's an in between there where it's like befriend them because you actually like them. Don't befriend them with the idea that you're going to be doing this. Like. Uh, and so these guys came in, saw the movie and, uh, afterwards, you know, you're screening for, for someone and they're dead silent, you know, that whole fucking thing. And afterwards I was like, so what do you think? And, uh, he's like, it's, it's fantastic. I love it. And I go, cool. Like what festivals do you think I should submit it to? What, what do you think it go? He's like, oh, it's never going to get into a film festival. I go, what? And he goes, no, it's never going to get into a film festival. I'm like, okay, well, what should I do? And he, he was like, uh, it won't get in. And I go, why? And he goes, cause it's 30 minutes. And I go, dude. 
It says on every fucking website that if it's under 40 minutes, then it'll get in. He's like, it's not going to get in. It's 30 minutes because it's going to kill the slots for three other fi films at the, at the short screening. Yeah, and you can't play that before a feature either. Exactly. And so, he was like, I'm like, so what do I cut out? He goes, don't cut anything out. I think the movie's fantastic. So, I'm like, so what you're saying is that I'm fucked. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I can help you screen it in a couple places, but yeah, you know, you're not really going to get into the stuff that you want to get into. Nowadays, you submit it as a web series to Sundance or something. Yeah. yeah there you go. No, no. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. Uh, so, I had to rethink my whole thing. And so, I, what I ended up doing was I didn't post it on YouTube. To this day, you can't see it online. The only way you can see this movie is if you write to me on Instagram and send me your three favorite horror movies. And if I agree with you, then I'll send you a link. But otherwise, you can't see it. But what I did was uh, I wrote to a bunch of uh, people that were writing online reviews and articles and stuff like that. So, I had a friend write a review for it on, I think at the time it was Twitch Film or something. And uh, once she put that review out, uh, just with the trailer... And she said, this is a movie that Hollywood should be making. I got calls and emails from Netflix. I got calls and emails from all the agents and everybody just based upon that article, that one review. And uh, that changed my life. So that's that, that, very interesting. That's fascinating. That's a, yeah. that's a version that we haven't heard before, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that is interesting because, you know, I've done a lot of PR stuff for branded content. Like, hey, you know, Jezebel, you'd love this thing about entourage or whatever you know and i don't mean this in a negative i mean this in a, the most positive ways but the way you kind of leveraged you who you knew like in pr and stuff kind of yeah helped well, build your career well i do because that came from what after the punisher scenario right so we made this really great piece i convinced like really great music acts to put stuff in it and my lawyer gave me the fucking bad news and i was just like so what do i do with this you know it's one of those moments in this business that we're consistently confronting you know like you're not allowed to do it you're like fuck and the lawyer was like, well, you, what you can do is you can write an article about it. You can write an article about the making of it. You can talk about all the aspects that you did. You can talk about all the things that you think would be great about a new Punisher series and the whole thing. And I was like, really? And he's like, yeah, and you could probably use a lot of the stills and supplemental material and how you made this thing. It becomes this write-up. And so, when I did that, the press on it went crazy. And so, like CBR and all these comic book resources, all these places were talking about how Marvel shut down this movie because of that article. And uh, the power of that Any article- Any reason not to cut like a, t like a trailer out of it or anything? Well, I did. I released it. Th that's where I fucked up. So, what I did was I cut a trailer first and I released a trailer online and in the comic book that's places. that's where you got flagged, basically. That's where I got yeah, flagged. Yeah, yeah. yeah, totally. That's how I got screwed. So, uh, but I'm happy I did it this way because now this movie is, is that punk rock album that never got released. And so, uh, weekly, and this is years later, weekly I'll have people writing to me going, I'd love to see this thing. I don't want to put it up because it'll never <laughs> live up to the hype that has happened from the article. And so, I really kind of learned the power of persuasion when it comes to, you know what it is? It's like the old days of going to the video store, right? You walk into the video store and you go over to the new release wall and you pick up like the newest piece of shit that everybody's talking about. You bring it up to the store clerk and the guy looks at you and goes, why are you getting that one? You should get what that one's based upon. And he brings you over to the, the dusty section of the video store and hands you a thing. And you want it because this guy is passionate about it and this person is giving you like an honest human review of it. Yeah. As a person who used to work in a video store, I would, people would come back to me angry all the time 
<laughs> all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was that guy. And then like the, the housewife would be like, I can't show this to my kids. Stupid. <laughs> it was actually I, genuinely a good lesson. I was like, oh yeah, I guess, uh, I should think about what they want, not what I want them to want. <laughs> I'm curious what these movies are that yeah, you're sending. I mean, look, Housewives like a Hollywood out. video. It's like not anything. It was just you know, standard film school stuff. It wasn't. You like walk into this back room that has pink lighting yeah, all the time, yeah, exactly. and let me find you this little family classic. <laughs> Blue is the warmest color. Your kids are gonna yeah, love. Yeah, I bet they would. Um, maybe uh, that's why they were mad at me. Yeah, it's like interesting. Too, that's I like how AFM kind of worked and i don't know if it still works right but it's like here's the poster here's the log line here's some shots like yeah. buy this movie yeah dude and dude. then the movie's horrible but like they're selling the marketing right i love that stuff i mean like that I, that's why i love movie posters I, there was that period of time when i was a kid where i wasn't allowed to rent horror i'd go into that video section and there'd be all these fucking creepy like illustrated posters of a dude with pins hanging out of his face and and it was just so magical you know, and then you watch them and you end up renting that movie and you watch that movie and you're like, man, this is a real piece of shit. But the posters and the the, the art for it were just amazing, you know? Dude, can I tell you guys this a very quick story? My friend made this, uh, the Butcher Brothers, I don't know, Mike Petchy, you heard them. They're like yes, yes. Horror yeah. guys. They made this movie before they became horror guys called Lurking in Suburbia. It was like a comedy about turning 30, which I think is kind of like, was a rite of passage at the time for filmmakers. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, the movie did pretty well. It came out on DVD. It got distribution. And then when it was right, they, they needed a new cover for the DVD. And they asked me to help out with like the photography and photoshopping it. And we had like the main actor from the movie. But then we just hired these like there's there is like a cheerleader in the movie for like one second. And they just hired <laughs> these cheerleaders, an old photo shoot with the cheerleaders uh-huh. and this guy for the cover of the DVD. That like sat at the video store. It had nothing to do with like people in the movie except for the one guy, you know? I love it, um, dude. <laughs> yeah. I was like, are we allowed to do this? Like, yeah. I mean, it's, Te- a, it's, it's a vibe. We're giving a yeah. vibe. You know? I thought you were going to say, actually, I had a friend who used to be like the body double for movie posters all the time where she would be like, oh, yeah, I'm like on Sunset Boulevard right now. And it would be her like crawling up a wall or whatever. But then they would Photoshop in the famous person's <laughs> face. Yeah. That's horrible. Yeah. It, it happened all the time. She was like, it was, she was like a working model and except for that they would replace her face all the time. They just save the money on the makeup yeah. part. That's <laughs> yeah. it. You're like, you recognize me? She just covers her face. Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Oh. She just shows up. She shows up like a hammered, like it doesn't have like two black eyes and she's like, it doesn't matter. It's, it's not a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, Mike, so then you decided to move to LA? Yeah. So, after... After I got uh, repped, you would start to take meetings. And um, one of you guys on the East Coast, because like taking meetings on the West Coast when you're on the East Coast is a nightmare. Yeah, no, we've both been West Coast based for ever, basically. So you were bouncing back and forth. Yeah, but also like just the phone meetings. Mm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you, you end up talking to these guys later in the day here. And it, what that essentially means is that I've done a full day back at home <laughs> with production and shoots and everything else. And it's like 830 and they're asking me some serious questions at night. And you're like, man. And it, so, it just became really difficult. I will say the one thing, I, I'm jealous of two things when people don't live in LA but are still taking tons of meetings. One, they probably have a house wherever they're living. And I'm always very jealous of that. I I love my apartment, but I would love a backyard. And two, when you are in town, you really make a meal of it. 
you're you're back to back meetings, you've got drinks, you've got dinners, and that's all just compressed because it's like, hey, Mike's in town for just a week or whatever it is. So like, let's get them all done. Whereas like take a meeting or, or drinks or whatever a couple nights a week and it's just like a slog. You know, it's hard to be entertaining yeah. is what we're saying. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, the thing that I learned, though, is because I they would jam pack my schedule. Like I'd come out for a week and it'd be like 15 meetings. You know what I mean? And you just you go and do it all. But at the end of the day, they really didn't pan out. Like there were a few that would pan out, but you just like, fuck, that was exhausting. And that was a marathon run. Being a successful producer back at home and being a, a, a person that kind of, I'm not saying I was the top dog in Boston when I was there, but I was a pretty high as far as the industry is concerned. And a lot of that was more so, I mean, I did good work and everybody knew the work was great, but I'd also throw like amazing Halloween parties. So we would have like 80 people crammed into a two floor house that we would light like a, like a film set. And the people would come in and have like these massive Halloween parties or I'd have, I'm a huge barbecue nerd. And so I, even out here before the pandemic, I'd have a bunch of people over barbecue. We'd sit around, drink beers and have a lot of fun with it. And it's in those meetings, it's in those situations that you make the deals, that you find the people that you're going to make the deals with. Or even I think to an earlier point you had, Mike, of like not being a douchebag when it comes to being friends with people. Like that's, that's the truth. That's the reality is like, you know, maybe we're a little more taco centric uh, in Los Angeles than barbecue centric, but the, the principle stands, right? Like just uh, being friends with people, supporting one another, being interested in what they're talking about and, and what they're working on um, and understanding when their show doesn't go or whatever is the nature of it. And I think that sometimes people, you know, when people talk about like fake Hollywood, quote unquote, they're really talking about just people being disingenuous and like, I don't know about you, Warren, but it's pretty rare that you are around someone who is using you or your friends. You know, for the most part, people are pretty genuine because they're sacrificing a lot to be here in the first place, you know? Yeah, I think the people that are kind of turned off by Hollywood are tend to be the ones that kind of had like a deal going and then it got canceled because there's a different show that's just like it, you know, or people that think their ideas have been stolen. But None of the people that like regularly work in Hollywood really think that everyone is like a liar. Well, you know, and I think the other people that really have a disdain for Hollywood are what I used to be, which are the people that don't have the balls to, to, to make that move. So back at home, I was always like, well, we could do this shit here. We don't need those fuckers. We could do it here. We'll do it and here. You're, you're right. And for you quite some time, that was the mantra. That is true. It's just a different shift in terms of what sort of business you want to be in. Right. Right. And, th and then when I, when I say to folks, you know, when do you move to, to Hollywood? And this comes back to me taking forever to answer that question. When do you move to Hollywood? I always say, hang out there, spend your first, spend those first years there, build a crew, learn your shit, learn your language, build your toolbox, build your creative toolbox, have all your stuff together, figure it all out. It's cheaper to make movies where you live. It's cheaper to deal all that stuff where you are. It's a nightmare to do it out here in Los Angeles if you are trying to deal with location and everything. But what happened for me was that you hit a ceiling, right? So you hit a point when you're outside the city where you want to start making the movies that you grew up loving. You want to start uh, getting the cash that you need to shoot longer than two days. You want to shoot for two weeks. You want to shoot for four weeks. And you want to do it with the same level of quality that you did your short on. Then you start to hit those restrictions. And the reality of the situation is, is that you need talent 
One of the hardest parts that I had uh, working in Boston was that all the great actors that I would work with and that were in my shit a year later would move to Los Angeles. And so finding great actors and great talent became a real problem as far as shooting outside the city. So uh, for me, it's interesting you bring that up because I it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is the the casting. Like to me, the number one reason to be in L.A. is casting because I've been shooting kind of all around the country in the last couple of years. And from a technical standpoint, gear standpoint, like, you know, DPs, grips, you know, makeup artists, like art department, like there's great people every single place you go. And a production designer on a horror film would probably do great on a drama and would probably do great on a sci-fi film, you know, or they'll bring in the right people. But with casting, it's not like 17 year old actress is going to do great in the role of a 75 year old, you know, man, right? You need specific talent for specific roles. And if you are in, you know, Boston's a great city, but if you're in like a smaller city in like New England and you're trying to cast, you know, a role, especially someone like in their twenties or thirties, like, you know, I, I think you can find some decent kid actors like actors that haven't moved to LA yet, you know, right before, but it's really hard. You'll audition a hundred people and you might have one good one. And then in LA, you audition a hundred people and you'll have like 80 good ones, you know, just not even comparable, like the amount of great actors that live in Los Angeles. Well, it makes sense though. And, and all the actors that listen to my show and all my actor pals, and even the people that I work with back at home, where they would come to me and kind of feel guilty. They'd, they'd come to me before they moved and went, I know that we said that we do all this stuff, but I need to move. And I'm like, you need to. I feel so bad for you in your, your profession because you're a depending, you're depending on a production. You're depending upon a, a director or producer or team finding you. And, and yes, go where there's a saturation of it. Go where there's money for it. And ultimately, that's the big thing about Los Angeles is that the cash for movies is out here. And I'm sure it's spread around with like Silicon Valley and all that kind of stuff these days. But traditionally, the cash to have a movie made, to get a green light, to get cash going, it's here. And the elements that you need to get that cash are here. Actors, right? Talent, writers, like all these top end crew positions that are relying upon there being like a huge pool to pull from. And so if you're an actor that lives outside of Los Angeles or New York, your life's going to be really fucking hard. And even if you're repped by somebody in one of those cities, like I don't, I've got friends that are still back in Boston and their rep is like, you need to fucking move. You need to get out of here, man, because I, I I can't get you on, you know, CSI <laughs> if you're if you're not able to show up to set or for the audition on a Tuesday randomly. And an actor needs to an, an actor needs to be up for at least 100 jobs a year in order to book five, you know, five to ten. And are there 100 jobs a year for, you know, I, I would a say 42 year old man. That's, oh, in that's low. I would say it's like a hundred to one, basically. Yeah. And so, it, yeah, it's a numbers game. And when you don't have the numbers, like in Boston, you have to be the best actor or you have to like play for the Celtics or something, you know, like there, there has to be some reason that people are casting you that wins you the role every single time. And in LA, it's a little bit more of a numbers game. You can go for, uh, you know, hundreds of roles and book a few of them. I have a buddy of mine that's uh, one of my best friends is an actor and he originally comes from Boston and he was just acting in Boston opposite uh, Leo in the new movie, DiCaprio in the new movie. And uh, he uh, came back and was telling me about it. I'm not going to give too much away because he, he punched me in the face. But he uh, was 
on set, everybody was like, he's a local, he's a local. He's not a local, he lives in Los Angeles, but he originally was a local and he still has his management in New England. So he plays that game where the management will call him and be like, hey, can you come back? We have this position, this role for you that they're looking for a local to do. And he's like, yeah, I'll come back and do that. Right, right. Well, and the, the local hire game, I think, is a very specific hustle um, because local hire also means they're not paying for lodging. Right. Like they could find someone in Los Angeles, but they're trying to skimp on paying for airfare and an Airbnb or a hotel room for, you know, however many nights. So he's foregoing all of those luxuries because he can crash on somebody's couch or whatever. Yeah, or right. Stay with his family. Stay with yeah, his family. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And depending on the market, like I think some of those more the a lot of the incentive states, those agents are very specific about like what a quote unquote local hire means because like uh, the lag time of like flying to New Mexico or whatever, isn't something that they can really accommodate. Yeah. It's complicated, weird stuff. We know uh, an actor and she works as a local in New Mexico and she would literally fly herself like same day flights to New Mexico to go to an audition to prove to people that she works locally, but she's, she's an LA actor. She's worked a ton on TV and stuff. And so when she goes there, her odds of booking a role are really high because she's up against, you know, audition technique, the local their resume, actor. all of yeah. that stuff. Yeah. So it's worth it for her to to kind of pretend to be local in New Mexico, even though she literally has to hop on a plane from LA to get. And similarly, like you know, this person has a family that they can crash with, so so they're out of pocket for air flights or whatever, but they're not, you know, spending a ton of money on hotels. And the hustle, I mean, I, that makes sense because the hustle is that. I mean, to find a way to just get yourself in the position to be able to do what you've been training for for so long, I would never dog them for that. It, it, I think that you got to do what you got to do to get on the screen, especially if you're an actor, yeah. man. No, I, there's no, there's nothing bad about it. It's it, literally, it's exactly what Matt said. It's the only reason they're hiring local is because the production is trying to save money on bringing people in from other places. And so if you can provide them with that service of saving that money, then why shouldn't you play that part? Well, I know we have to wrap up soon, but I want to answer the big question of this episode, which Mike, when do you move to Hollywood? What is the thing that makes you move? Well, for me, it was a couple of things. One, I was doing some of the biggest commercials in Boston that I could possibly do. Like I had did a Sam Adams commercial. I had my billboard, my photo billboards at Fenway Park, and I still had three roommates. <laughs> so you you sort of look at that and you go, uh, okay, so this business strategy is not really working out here. And so that was a big factor. Uh, the other factor for me is that I was lucky enough, the girl that tried to murder me on my ice skates ended up sticking with me. And she also works in this business. She's a photographer and now a director these days. And so she was also like, look, there are limitations to the city. And I know you're a diehard Bostonian. And I know you will find ways to make it work here for you. But imagine how much faster you might be able to get things done if you're rubbing shoulders with the right people at this point. And so for, yeah. for you can hang out with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck in LA. Yeah. 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 How, yeah. How do you like those apples though, Mike? That's what yeah. I really need to know. Yeah. I don't have to just hang out at Dunkin' Donuts to hang out with those guys at this point. Uh, um, but uh, so that was a big factor for me. And then more than anything else, it was trying to, trying to get being in development on these two features is difficult because it's development takes forever. 
You know, you have like that day one where you're like, oh my God, these guys want to make the movie. And you're like, fucking hey, you know, we've done it. And then you are like three years later and you're like, okay. Well, I guess to universalize it, Mike, when your listeners or people ask you if they should move to Hollywood, what's your like litmus test for them? I would just say like, have you, have you made stuff in your space that is worth, that represents what it is that you want to do? Have you made something that if you had an agent or even if you just had an email for someone and you sent it to them, they could watch that thing and go, this is what this guy does. Cool. And you're excited about how you're represented. You know what I mean? I say, do that at home. Do that at home first. Fuck around. Make your YouTube videos. Do your shit. Show it to your friends. Do a screening with people that aren't important. Realize how embarrassing your shit is. Fix it. Uh, do all that at home. And then when you hit a point where you understand that it's limiting you not to be in your city, like it's limiting you, you're not getting the talent you need for your productions, you're not uh, getting the access you need, you're not getting the money you need for your shit, then it's time to move. And if some, some people have that foresight where they can see it coming. For me, when we made the decision to move, I needed a year to clean up everything. So for me, I needed a full year to actually get into the position where I can make the job. Yeah, I think there's a lot of stuff that I really love about that. Uh, the idea of tapping out, right? Of you, you kind of sometimes you have that come to Jesus moment where you just look at the numbers, right? Um, and I had a similar experience, but with the day job that I had where I was like, oh, I'm not going to make the money that I want to be making because I know what the corporate mandated increased cost of living and like uh, raise caps are. So like I can do the simple math and figure out like that I'm never going to make enough money to really thrive in this city. But but I you know I I do want to talk about and think about the idea of when to move a little bit more because I think that what you're hinting at is like the idea of like practicing in private, which I think is a really smart and really wise mentality to have of like make those mistakes on your home turf where they're not so costly. But it's not like when you move to Los Angeles and you make your bad YouTube videos that Johnny Hollywood is watching. Do you know what I mean? It's not like everyone at CA is like, well, we saw Patchy's YouTube channel. We're not liking and subscribing. Well, yeah, but, but okay, let me, let me refine that a bit then. So I don't think it's about not being impaired. Okay, let me give you an example. So when I was doing, when I was doing 12KM, right, I had hired this entire production team, I was lucky enough to book a location from someone that I knew, right? So we bought this, we got this giant warehouse that I was going to convert into a drilling site for this Russian drill team. And it was period piece, so everything had to be built. So I, I got this place from a, a friend of a friend who was already gonna tear this warehouse down. So he gave me the entire warehouse for a month. So I had it for a month and I was only shooting for four days. And so then I was able to convince an entire production staff, like a whole um, uh, production design staff uh, that in a city that has like a really great tax incentive, has like a really a fantastic crew that is consistently working on big movies. I think they were doing like surrogates at the time, that Bruce Willis movie. And so my production design team was working during the day on Bruce Willis's movie. And then they would go to this building at night and do a whole other shift at night to try to build these sets for what I needed to do. So these guys were burning on both ends, burning the candle on both ends, right? And so I showed up one day and I had convinced my my now good buddy, David Cruder, to be a DP and he was coming in from New York and I wanted to make sure he was impressed, you know? And he shows up to set. And uh, I, I remember he got to set earlier than I did one day. 
And on the script, it says that these guys are crowded around this hole and there's this giant winch that's lowering this cable down into this hole. And so I walk on the set and I see him. He comes over to me and he's like, hey, how are you doing? And I was like, cool, man. And he's like, have you seen the set? <laughs> and I walk into this room and the winch is literally a camera tripod with a, with a cable running off of it down into the hole. And I have fucking panic attack because I'm literally doing Paul Thomas Anderson Steadicam shot that establishes the entire location of this place around this thing. And I have the Steadicam guy from ESPN who flew overnight and he's only here for 12 hours to do this thing. And I have all this crap like stacked against me and I'm staring at this fucking tripod, this, this, this aqua blue tripod that's hanging over this hole. And I call my, my dudes and I get on the phone with my guy and these guys have been sleep deprived for weeks. And he's just like, Mike, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you and hangs up the phone. And so I have this moment of like, what the fuck? What the fuck can I do here? What do I do here? And I, I turned to my assistant and we walk outside and I was able to go back on every one of these productions that I did. Every one of these little shows that I never would have been able to do if I moved to New York because I would have been busy trying to pay for fucking rent. I would have been busy trying to keep myself alive. But because I kept my cost of living down, I was able to do all these little shorts, all these little projects. And so I just mentally opened up my toolbox and went, how do I find this thing? And I had every right at that moment to start throwing chairs and crying because of everything that was built up to this bit, but I didn't. And I rolled to my Rolodex and I went, remember we did that music video, there's this rental place. There's a rental place around the corner that actually does real construction rental stuff. I bet you, go on their website, goes on the website and you know, like they have a winch. Right. Fucking, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, so so, but I think your point is really, to me, what I'm hearing is, is about building a Rolodex and building relationships. But and it's also building confidence. Sure, too. sure. But you could do that other places as well. That's that's my only point. Do you know what I mean? Like you, I think you can still the same sort of let's all put on a show mentality happens in Los Angeles and New York and London and all those other places. It, it totally does. The difference between me and the four guys that I went to film school with, we all had the same passion, and those guys stayed in New York. And one guy was like. I can't do this. I have to pay my rent. So he went and he has a great career, had a great career at one of the best trailer cutting studios in the country. Cut trailers for like the Matrix, cut trailers for all that shit. Amazing career. Didn't get to make movies. And another buddy of mine ended up going off and literally got it in as a page at NBC and then became an NBC producer and, and, and did all that stuff. Really great. He often talks about how he didn't get to make his movies. And so I, I think that at the end of the day, the only thing I had over these guys is that I was able to keep my cost of living way the fuck down. And I think if you move to Los Angeles young, if you move to LA, move to Los Angeles, those cities will swallow you fucking whole because it costs so much to live there. If you have that cash and you have that ability and you have that management skill where you're like, I'm going to go do this day job and log all this fucking reality TV show footage and then I'm going to go home and write a short and do this stuff, power to you. It can be done. It totally can be done. But if you find yourself asking that question, do I need to move to New York or Los Angeles to become successful? You don't need to right away. You really don't. You can build your skills and make your craft wherever the fuck it is that you live and then you're going to surprise the shit out of people. I had people when I went into meetings thinking that I was from Russia. I would walk into a room and they'd go, what? Who are you? And I go, I'm Mike. And they go, we thought you were fucking Russian, dude. And I'm like, no, I'm, a, I'm an Italian guy from Boston. I'm like, you're from fucking Boston? Like, 
there's something really great about being able to do that. So at the end of the day, I didn't get my shit going until I was late 30s. And I, there was that anxiety of like, fuck, I'm, I'm almost 40. I'm not making a movie. But I reminded myself, really, Scott didn't start doing his movies until he was in his fucking 40. So there's, there's no time limit to doing this shit. So why not spend time and have fun with it and cut out a lot of the anxieties in your life and do it where you're comfortable doing it? Yeah. You know? No, I think that's a great point. I mean, it, I mean, the, the simple version of saying that is like, build your confidence and make things you're proud of and then move to LA because you'll have stuff to talk about and you'll have the confidence to kind of step into a higher role than you would than if you came right at the beginning. <laughs> and if I had said it that way, I would have saved us, what, 45, 40, 40 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I, I think there's a ton of ways to skin a cat. I think... Look, that I, we're lucky in that podcasts are one of a myriad of ways of people understanding all of the different pathways. And so I think it's great just to hear your story and to understand what it took for you to be ready to make it happen. And so I think it's so exciting that things are going great for you and that you could pull off uh, what sounds like a, a genuinely impressive proof of concept. Thanks, man. But at the same token, I say this on my show all the time, just because it works for me, it's not going to work for you. There's no, it's not like we want to, we're signing up to be firefighters where it's like, I'm going to go to the fucking fire academy. I'm going to go put my hours in. Dude, all you can do, and that's why I try to have as many guests on the show to talk about this as possible, is you just listen to, you know what it is? You're looking for that moment that each person has and that they share, which is the aha moment. And you're trying to train yourself to have the skills behind you to be ready for that aha moment. But then you're also trying to train yourself to be able to see that aha moment and to be able to acknowledge that thing. And I think if anything, whether you're listening to your show or my show, the thing to look for is when that person learned to be aware of it, when that person learned to be accepting of the opportunity to to follow their dream. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think also another commonality is the threshold of like when whatever it is you're doing to make ends meet gets in the way or becomes the limiting factor in realizing your dreams, right? Like I think unless you're born with incredible resources, which, you know, some filmmakers have, but for the most of us and for the people that, you know, our show is for you have to make a living somehow, right? And so there's that really tricky balance in any filmmaker's life where they have to kind of decide to kind of take the plunge and and know that they can support themselves doing their craft and what that means to them. You know, I think Orton and I do a lot of commercial filmmaking and that's certainly something that I never thought I would do or had any interest in, frankly. And so it's you know, I think that there's always going to be trade-offs in terms of what it takes to to make that cash. Yeah, but all, dude, also the stuff that you guys learn, I mean, I've looked through your stuff. It's phenomenal. The stuff that you guys have learned about blocking, the stuff that you guys have learned about performances, the stuff that you learn about, how do I take this idea that comes from 13 creatives that had to spend forever convincing a fat guy with a cigar hanging out of his mouth with a fucking warehouse full of dog shit to make this commercial and to sell his product. How do you make something that's really Mike, great? Mike, that's the other that. difference between uh, Boston and LA. We don't have fat guys. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you swap him out for, he's in like athleisure. He's in like a, a cashmere hoodie and like Lululemon joggers. Oh, and I'm sending the PA out for a fucking hit. <laughs> 
I'm like, PA, can you go buy me a gun? <laughs> hey, man, namaste. You just, you're yeah. in Los Angeles now. <laughs> See, you know what it is? Asada on that grill too, buddy. I, dude, I haven't had enough time to be a Los I've been here for, what, a year, but we moved out here, what, uh, three months before the yeah, yeah, yeah. pandemic? Yeah, brutal. So I haven't had time to transform yet. I'm still a yeah. East Coaster hiding in a cave yeah, on the well, West Coast. <laughs> I hope you learned to like Tecate because... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's not all tea parties here. Okay? <laughs> no, I get like it. Like our beer. Yeah, no big beans out here. Yeah, I got That's you. true. Yeah, yeah. I, the last time I had big beans. Well, uh, are you down to join us for an unpaid endorsement? Yeah, yeah. But you guys go first. Unpaid endorsement. So I read this Twitter thread. I think I sent it to you, Matt. It's from this guy named Matt Ritter who posted about his first open writing assignment and his journey to get there. Um, so his name is Matt, M-A-T-T, Ritter, like John Ritter. No relation that I know of. But um, but yeah, he says he grew up on Long Island, middle class, zero connections to Hollywood. I means zero. Like he went to law school and everything. And he just spent many, many, many years of his life like trying to figure out how to kind of make it as a writer and how to get paid. He wrote like feature after feature after feature. And, you know, something like he almost got so many things made and didn't or so hired to write so many things. And then. Um, it's this thread about just his perseverance and how long it actually took him to get paid to, you know, write a script. It's a WGA gig. And I just thought it's really inspirational because, you know, like, like everything we've talked about in this episode, it's really easy to be like, oh, this person wrote a script and now they're making it in Hollywood. <laughs> and like to forget the like 20 years in between, you know, that person deciding they want to be a writer and that script actually made. So I, I was just really inspired by it. So my endorsement is actually thematically appropriate because it is another podcast, another filmmaking podcast. It's Gnome Kroll's Show Don't Tell. We've had Gnome on the show before. He's a buddy, he's a pal and a really great interviewer. And he, episode 132, he's got David F. Sandberg on the show. Uh, I texted oh, Oren. I was, How was it? I was so jealous because it uh, it's great. Yeah, it's great. And also, it's funny when you have your own filmmaking podcast. Every once in a while, it's pretty rare, but every once in a while, it feels like, oh, this is like an episode that we would have done. Well, I did tweet at him and said, and asked him if he wanted to come on the show, and he never responded. I, so. I've emailed him as well. So whatever Gnome Secret Sauce is, shout out to you, buddy. But uh, well done. The episode's great. It's a lot of the questions that we would have asked and is filled with insight. And, you know, I think that for a guy who's pretty open, I'm talking about Sandberg here, he's he's still got uh, plenty of interesting tidbits and thoughts about his career and the nature of how kind of crazy accelerated it was. And also how, you know, uh, insecure he, I think is maybe the word that he used. Uh, he felt when doing his first handful of blockbuster studio films, you know? So I think yeah, it's really people that don't know what movies has he directed. He did Shazam. So he, he did Shazam like most that. recently and the Shazam sequel, which I think he's working on now, but then, uh, Annabelle creation and then lights out before that basically. But it all started in, based on a short, film, short films and all that stuff. Yeah. So uh, he's got a great YouTube channel that I think people are probably aware of, but uh, it's worth checking out as well. But the, this episode of gnomes show show don't tell uh, episode 132 is, um, is great. So that's my endorsement. He's great. I, like you guys, I've also reached out to him and we have the same manager. So, so, so like I, I still haven't been able to get him on the show. And he recently did a video that was really interesting talking about how antisocial he is, which is on his, uh, 
on his YouTube, which I thought was really fascinating. And also was like, ah, oh, that's probably why I never got back to it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why I was so, I was like, dang, how did Gnome do it? Yeah. We should have told him we're also antisocial and we'd love to. <laughs> yeah, that's why we have a podcast. <laughs> David? Yeah, he's great, man. He's great. All right. Well, let's see. What can I endorse? Um, you know what? I, you know what's really kind of stuck with me? is uh having all this spare time now in uh in our covid environment i have actually been uh listening to a lot of audible a lot of books on audible these days and uh i've been doing a lot of embarrassingly so i've been going back and sort of reading all the books that actors read because i had one day where i was like shit i really don't know what they're studying so i can't believe i'm a director and i've never looked at this stuff so i ended up going back and reading a lot of books on acting but there were a lot of work to get through you know, and I needed to find uh, something that was different and strange. And I stumbled across this book called Talking to Strangers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Have you yeah, guys read I'm reading this? reading that right now. Are you really, Oren? Yeah. Oh, that, you're so dry. Sometimes it's hard to tell when you're joking. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I bought it a while ago, but I've been trying to read more. You know, it's hard with Twitter and politics. But yeah, I've been, I'm on that, all the Sandusky stuff right now. Dude, it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, I, I would actually say that the, uh, the uh, production that they did in Audible is fantastic for it because they actually get access to the real uh, interviews. They get access to all that stuff. So it's really well produced. So it's like a really great listen. It's a fast listen. I think I went through the whole thing in like a two days, two and a half days or something. It's really interesting. And it really sort of changed my perspective on how we process strangers and how we think of ourselves, which I thought was fascinating. And there was this, I'm going to screw it up because I'm terrible at this, but there was this study that they were doing where they would hand out tests to, uh, and I'm sure you've read this part already, so you can always jump in. They, they hand out tests to folks that they have to sort of fill in the blanks, answer, answer questions like word tests. Like they'll start with two letters and be like, you know, like CR and someone might write crazy and then they go through and they fill out all these tests. And afterwards, they asked them, hey, look, do you think that this test is an accurate representation of who you are emotionally? And everybody would say, well, no, I was just answering these questions. Like if I wrote crazy, then how do you know that my brain just didn't end up on that path and I was just writing crazy serial killer and everything else because I was thinking about a Netflix show or whatever. And he goes, okay, so you don't think this is an accurate representation of who you are? No. Well, how about this? check out this form and they would hand them the forms of the other people that were taking the test in the room and the same person would look at it and go, wow, this person's got emotional problems. And the ability that we have to so quickly think that we are complex human beings, but strangers are easy for us to understand and strangers are easier for us to categorize was incredibly fascinating to me. And strangely, reading through this book, it sort of brings me back to what I was saying earlier that our jobs are social jobs. We know as three of us being directors and having to deal with uh, meeting a strange fucking actor for the first time and trying to get emotions out of them. It was just an interesting study into how little I actually know about what facial response means and how little I know about what a stranger is thinking when they walk onto a set or even if I'm standing in line in a bodega in New York City, like what that guy's thinking. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know what makes it easier? Cover all these people with masks. <laughs> well, yeah, easier, right? At that point, you're at that point. At that point, you're just judging whatever outfit, whatever lies that they're putting on. Themselves. I keep hearing people saying things like, "I'm smiling under the mask." To say <laughs> that, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
Sure you are. Yeah. Where's the emoji? Where's the emoji that goes on the front? Just smiles. It's a great. It's a. It's a great listen. It's a great book, and like a, I'm not getting paid for those. Yeah. So there you go, an unpaid endorsement. That's the only requirement. Perfect. Well, Mike, uh, this was such a treat. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, where can listeners learn more about you and your podcast? Uh, so if you are listening to my podcast now, you guys already know, but if you're a newcomer to it, uh, the simplest way to do it is you can go to unlevelthaprocess.com. Uh, there we've curated all our episodes. You guys are a bit further and been doing it longer than us. I think we're at a hundred and change. And I know a lot of newcomers come on board and they're like, Jesus Christ, what do I do? Do I start at number one? Well, we curate our shows based upon subject material. And what I'm trying to do these days is uh, the the podcast is blowing up a bit more than just filmmaking. I'm, I'm trying to have it be essentially about appreciating all the access that I get as a director and all the access that I get as a creative. And so we've got a lot of chefs on the show. We've got a lot of musicians that we work with on the show. We, we try to make it about anybody that has said goodbye to that nine to five lifestyle and has turned into their fears and decided to to run with it. And that's kind of what we do. So you can go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, check us out there, or you can find us in Love of the Process on Spotify, anywhere that you listen to this stuff, you'll find us there. And by the way, special cameo by my fucking landscaper who continuously can, just shows up to my house to blow the leaves every time I set up my Oh man, tell him what's up. Oh yeah, we got a cameo by my... Uh... Some guy that's attaching baseboards to my kitchen right you know, now. As well. I, I <laughs> got a nail gun. Uh, I got a cameo from Andy Dick, and it was well worth the money. So uh, <laughs> did I mention that, my, that Matt works for Candy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it seems for, like it's UGC. It's actually me. I'm I'm directing all of those cameos. <laughs> if you want to find out more about us, you should check out our website, justshootitpodcast.com. We're also across all social media at Just Shoot It Pod. Uh, our podcast is about mainly directing to be honest filmmaking uh with a focus on people that make a living as directors um you know the craft and the business and we we love to talk to all sorts of people at all sorts of levels it's mainly a filmmaking show you can find me on social media i'm at o kaplan on instagram and at smitey pileg on twitter you can find me at mr matt enlow on all social media including letterboxd i've noticed a few people following me on letterboxd thanks everyone but uh instagram and twitter are great as well um, this episode was edited by Sarah Weirda. You're listening to music provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And our social media maven is Derek Aiello. I think that's all she wrote. Yeah. Rate us and Mike's podcast on iTunes. There you go. Why not just do it right now? It's fun. We'll talk to y'all later.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.